Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. This is Craig Cottle, the director of Nature Reliance School, with a couple of tidbits for you. Listen up. Did you know that, well, you probably did know that Denali is the highest peak in North America. But did you know where the name came from? Denali comes from a Native American term, Denali, from the Koyukon language, which means mountain big. It's a term that's used on the northern side of the mountain by those Native peoples. Tidbit number two, did you know that Mount Rainier in Washington State is over 14,000 feet tall and is actually a large active stratovolcano? Now, you're asking yourself, why are you offering these two tidbits of information? Well, the man that Tracy Trimble is going to interview today, Mr. Mark Ryan, has summited both. He's been to the top of Denali, and he's been to the top of Mount Rainier several times. this podcast, Tracy and Mark are going to dig into several aspects of mountaineering and how to apply it to your everyday adventure life, whether it's mountaineering, backpacking, hiking, surviving, or whatever it is you do in the great outdoors. Mark is going to discuss snow caves and why they are very useful instead of a tent when you're on the top of a mountain. He's also going to be taking a look at altimeters and how that is an integral piece of mountaineering equipment and how you can apply it to your use as well, as well as multiple pieces of gear and how it changes from being in a mountaineering setting to an average, ordinary backpacking trip. Mark is very well known in local circles as the training coordinator for Wolf County Search and Rescue. That experience, as well as his mountaineering experience, makes him a wealth of information. So join in as Tracy and Mark get into mountaineering. Welcome in, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, Tracy. How's it going? Having a busy day so far? Uh, Yes, sir. Now, you're at work, right, in Cincinnati? I am, yes. I'm the IT manager for the NBC affiliate here in Cincinnati. So how's the COVID been treating Cincinnati up there? 
Uh, about the same as uh, most uh, Midwestern towns. Yeah. Um, you know, our county is in red, like a lot of people at this point. It's, you know, the middle of uh, November 2020. So um, everything's on the rise. Kind of hit hard. Now get this, our entire population of the Menifee County is 6,300 people, right, for the entire county. So we're in the red. We go into the red really quick, and we are there. The My wife teaches at a local high school here, and they had seven teachers in about three days test positive. So school wow. is pretty much virtual to the rest of the rest huh. of the year, you know. So I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. She was on quarantine. I was on quarantine, but she didn't show any symptoms, so. I guess um, I guess maybe someday we'll get back to so-called normal, but it's going to be tough, tough for a while. Yeah, it's kind of odd, odd operating. Mark, you are uh, on our Wolf County Search and Rescue team, and mm-hmm. you are our training officer. Tell us a little bit about your search and rescue background and how you got started in all that. Um, search and rescue, I started uh, in the Civil Air Patrol um, doing search and rescue. Uh, was in their cadet program many years ago. Uh, we did mostly searches for downed aircraft, um, ramp searches. Uh, we did do uh, some dead body searches and uh, missing person searches, but our primary uh, search criteria was for downed aircraft. With that, I learned all the kind of the basic skills that you would learn from search and rescue to land navigation, um, high angle rescue, how to operate in the woods, uh, I went to several, well, three major survival schools, uh, one in Pennsylvania, one in Mississauga, Ontario, <clears throat> for a winter school, and then uh, one in Washington State that the Washington State Civil Air Patrol held. And how old were you when, when you're doing all this? From 14, 15 to 19 years old. Holy cow, you got started at 14? Yeah, that's when the cadet program starts for celebrity. So yeah. how did how did you get started in that? Who who got you started? Honestly, I don't rightly remember. Um, I had a, a really uh, interest in aircraft, and maybe maybe my mom or somebody pointed me in the direction of Silver Patrol. Uh, we've kn- we've known each other for what maybe four four years, five years, maybe mm. Some, something like that. Probably a little longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. Time time does get away, doesn't it? I did not know that of you. <laughs> so that's, yeah. one, that's one reason I love about doing these podcasts. Is you oh, right. Yeah. So that's, that's how I got started. And then um, basically that's how I ended up in Seattle. <clears throat> I like the uh, Washington State area so much. Uh, I went out for a summer school and then I went out for a winter school. And then I just moved out permanently. So that's uh, how I got involved in mountaineering, basically, because I was in the so you're you're back in the Cincinnati area now, or at least for your primary work, I guess, is Cincinnati area. I am, yeah. I've been yeah. back here another twenty years now. Twenty years. Uh, what drawed you to the outdoors? I mean, um, at, at, around here at fourteen, you know, we we just kind of the back doors of the woods was our playground. Yeah. But what got you interested in just going outdoors um, and doing outdoor well, stuff? You know, like any kid, I guess, uh, back in the late seventies, uh, like playing outside. Cause that's just where we, we, we didn't have video games. Right. Mm-hmm. You remember those days. So, oh, yeah. uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, my teenagers in the river gorge, um, kind of just like I do now pretty much. Uh, I mean, I was bumming rides down there with friends long before I could drive. So, so where are you originally from? Where I'm originally from Cincinnati. And then okay. when I was 19, I moved to Seattle 
for 16 years. So as a, so as a teenager, you would come down just with a group of friends and family members, I guess, to the gourds. So you've been coming for a long time then. When I started the mountain parkway was a toll road. Yeah. With the clover leaves and the, you know, had to throw the money and the thing. And yeah. The little, if you remember those, that slate, remember there was a, yeah. at every uh, exit, there was a toll booth. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, that's been a lifetime ago for me. So that's cool. I didn't know you hit the gorge. I thought you hit the gorge later in life. Oh no! Oh no! I I spent. So did you all climb whenever y'all were whenever you were? Oh, well, there wasn't climbing like there is now. I mean, right. when I started the gorge, it was 1978. So the bolted sport climbing didn't show up until the 90s. So uh, we did trad, a little bit of trad climbing, a lot of top roping and stuff like that, but. Uh, big, big fat bolts to fall on didn't exist. They're all quarter inch bolts and you really didn't put those in sandstone at the time. When I was here the first time, uh, there was no gas station at the Slate intersection. Uh, there was the Chevron station, but there was no uh, Shell station. Miguel's didn't exist. Uh, Torrent didn't exist, right. uh, even though we camped there. But um, none of those places existed when I was here in, in the late 70s, early 80s. And it exploded in the 90s, didn't it? Yeah, when I came back, uh, I came back to visit a couple times and came down the gorge. And that's when, yeah, I noticed that everything kind of happens. Everyone else found the gorge. And but we would fun. come down to the River Gorge and go to many of the places that you know now, and we would never see anybody all weekend. Yeah. That was, that was normal. Oh, I can remember as a kid going out and you might have one vehicle in a parking lot. Yeah, you know, exactly. And you just wouldn't see anyone. But, but that's pretty cool. Now, you're currently associated with a climbing facility up in the Red River Gorge? I was on the board of directors for Muir Valley, which okay. is a privately held climbing uh, location uh, for 14 years. Um, That's a pretty hot spot, isn't it, for the climbers? Um, yeah, Muir Valley yeah. is an excellent climbing location for the gorge. And again, it's private land. Yeah. Uh, as There's a couple other larger tracts of private land for rock climbing, um, in addition to the current climbs on Forest Service property in the River Gorge proper. Yeah. I think your overall topic today is going to be, we're going to dig into the topic of mountaineering, which I absolutely know nothing about. The only hills that I've climbed uh, is here in Kentucky. I don't think I've climbed anything that would qualify as a mountain. So <laughs> this is all going to be new to me. So I'll be uh, inter- uh, asking some, probably some crazy questions, but how did you get into, ma- well, first of all, tell us what is mountaineering? If if someone said, Mark, what in the heck, is that just hiking? I don't know what the official definition is, but I'll define it as climbing of some sort above the tree line in general. So, you know, after, depending on where you are in the country, the tree line, the trees stop growing. So in Colorado, for example, that's generally at 12,000, 12 and a half thousand feet. In Washington state, it's about 5,000 to 6,000 feet. Uh, when you get in that zone above there where you're dealing with rock and ice and snow uh, and you're doing some type of actual climbing, that's, I'm going to put that in the mountaineering category. So anything above the tree line? We'll above the tree line in, in an alpine zone, yeah. Cool. How did you get started in mountaineering? Uh, well, probably through search and rescue. Um, and then me and when I moved to Washington State, I had friends that were in a group called the Seattle Mountaineers. You know, one thing led to another, and pretty soon you're you're learning the skills you need to know to survive in the mountains, and you're mountaineering. 
whenever you got started, did you go, did you specifically go to a school or to uh, a training for? Um, not, not specifically. It happened over several years, actually, uh, mostly with friends of mine. We would go out and climb one mountain and get better and climb another mountain and get better. And the next thing you know, we're doing all the big mountains. Interesting. What gear would you say you've been associated with my area here in central Kentucky, Red River Gorge, and that type of what we just normally call hiking? Mm -hmm. What type of gear would you consider to be different from, say, a central Kentucky hike in the woods versus mountaineering? Because whenever you mention snow and ice, that gets serious, I would think. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Yeah, generally, if you were to come with me on a trip, I would tell you that you need to plan for a 20 mile an hour wind um, and a 20 degree temperature. So about zero degrees with the wind chill. So you're going to wear probably a lot of the stuff that you would you would normally consider uh, what you would wear in a snowstorm, uh, in a really bad snowstorm in Kentucky. All you know, usually synthetic underlayers and Gore-Tex outer layers. Uh, maybe a down jacket for a stop down, you know, if you're going to be out there overnight and then uh, a lot of sunscreen. A lot of sunscreen. What about uh, sleep weather or sleep conditions? What, what, what do y'all do for sleep? It depends uh, exactly what my trip is, but uh, generally if I'm going to be someplace where it's not going to rain, I will bring a down sleeping bag, usually a 20 degree bag for, most summer conditions in Seattle, um, but I do have a 20 below bag for trips like Denali. So it depends on the, you know, the trip. So if I'm going to do Rainier in the winter, I would bring my 20 below bag. Uh, but if I was going to do Rainier in the summer, I would bring my down. Tent or sleeping outside? Uh, depends. So this is going to be kind of a weird question, but generally in the winter, I don't bring a tent. I prefer to dig a snow cave because um, it's quieter and easier in the summertime for the for the most part for the people that I go with I, we do bring a tent so in other words uh, I have done it I've done Rainier if we're talking about Rainier specifically a few times without a tent because again it's easier because of the way if you're going to do it in two days because of the way you do it bringing a tent's uh, just extra weight when we go for a week and plan to camp on the summit uh, I will bring a tent so you mentioned snow cave. Mm-hmm. Many of our listeners have never built or considered a snow cave. Mm-hmm. What goes into consideration to building a snow cave? Uh, first of all, the snow. Yeah. Uh, you have to have the right kind of snow to do it. Washington State, for example, has generally better snow 
for a cave in particular than let's say if you were going to go to the Arctic on Denali, we built a snow cave that didn't work very well because the moisture content of the snow is really low. Uh, it works a lot better for pouring a block if you want to build an igloo. Um, that's the place to do it. But you could not build an igloo on the on Mount Rainier with the snow that we have in the Cascades. So the snow is your first consideration. And then location and then, um, you know, the reason why you're doing it. In the winter, it's nice to build a snow cave because it's quiet. Uh, it's a little warmer than a tent. And it's someplace you can leave up and come back to if you have an emergency and you, you wouldn't have to set it up. It would already be there. So those are some advantages of a snow cave. It strikes me odd that you would say quiet. It's uh, quiet from the wind or? Yeah, quiet from the wind. I guess that, I guess if you hear it all day long, oh, I guess yeah. that wears on you. It's like um, you're living next to a railroad track. Really? Yeah, it's, it's it can be, especially in the winter, it can be really loud. So um, when you get inside a snow cave, it's uh, it's very relaxing because it's quiet. I, I would have never thought that. That's interesting. What about uh, food considerations? I would imagine you're going to be burning tons of calories. Um, you do. And again, it depends on the trip. Uh, if you're going to Denali, we brought lots of cheese. We put butter in our hot chocolate and just did all kinds of crazy stuff to up our calories because uh, you were in the Arctic. But um, on Rainier, you can get away with just about anything from very little food if you're going to try to pull it off in two days to if you're going to go for a week, I would bring... I would structure my food so the higher I got, the lighter my food went. So in the beginning, uh, I might fry up some hamburger and have like, uh, we'll call a real food, like hamburger helper for the first couple of days when the meat still might be good um, and any other fresh vegetables that might last for the first couple of days. And then as you get above maybe 10 or 12,000 feet, you, you don't want to be humping all that food with moisture in it. So you'd switch over to freeze dried. How long have, what's the longest you've been out? Mountaineering. I did Denali and that was four weeks. Four weeks? Mm -hmm. A month. A month. Yeah. They they fly you in, you land on the, and for the southeast buttress of McKinley, you land uh on the southeast fork of the Kelma Glacier, and then you bury a week's worth of food there. And then you take another month's worth of food and you move it up expedition style. So every day you get up and you move, you know, three quarters of your food to a cache and then come back to camp. And then the next day you wake up and pack up camp and move up to your food cache. And you kind of leapfrog that for the first couple, three weeks as you acclimate. Just, I mean, uh, you've probably seen this on uh, Everest, how they climb Everest expedition yeah. style. And then um, you just try to judge the weather and how much food you need and keep moving up, move, moving camp up. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about Denali. You did it once? Once, yeah. Yep. To, but remember, so, you do the whole thing twice. Uh -huh. Every day you're shuttling back and forth, except for the last day, the summit day. Yeah, it's expedition style. So yeah. every every day, every time you move up, you're only moving half of your gear. So how many was in your party? Three. Did you all go with the guide? No. You all just went on your own. The three of you yeah. went on your own. Yeah. And I guess you have to register with the park system up there. You you do. You have to stop at the Takitna Ranger Station and um, pay your. 150 bucks. And that allows the forest service to keep track of people and where they're going or supposed to be going and for emergencies Correct. Yeah. and everything. If you want to be on Denali, you have to have a permit. Just like Rainier, you have to have a permit to be on Rainier as well. Yeah. So you all fly in and 
you all make it, let's say, to your first um, food cache and set up camp. Mm-hmm. The next morning you get up, you move some of that cache on up the mountain, I guess, the climb. Is climb the right word or is it? Uh, well, it depends. The first couple of weeks you're actually skiing and pulling a sled okay. and wearing a backpack. So okay. you're humping a week, a month's worth of food so uh, and fuel. So you're, you know, you might have like eight gallons of gas. And What does that weigh? Whenever y'all first started out, what was your weight of all the gear that you brought in? Uh, I did not weigh it, honestly. <laughs> um, my rule of thumb generally was that you always needed help to put your backpack on. So um, it was never any lighter than that. But uh, I never really, I, I honestly, I don't think I've ever really weighed any of my mountaineering packs because it's not like it's an option not to bring it. But, but less is definitely more. So you would put, I would usually down low, put all the heavy stuff in my sled and then pull that and then try to put the lighter stuff in my backpack, <clears throat> um, you know, for obvious reasons. So I don't want to be humping all the, while I'm skiing, right, for the right. first couple of weeks. Right. After you ditch your skis, you don't have that option. You have to put it on your backpack so because you're not necessarily pulling a sled. Well, I take that back. There was one, one carry we made without skis, just with crampons pulling the sled. So you all spend the first couple of weeks shoveling your gear up the up the trail up the mountain, I guess. Yeah, no, and no path, all glacier. All glacier, all yeah, glacier. Skiing. Gosh. Okay, and then once you get to the point to where you're going to be, I guess you all drop the sled portion. Yeah, we bury the bury the sleds, and you start the climb. Right. Okay, take us from there. How long does it once you start the climb to get to the summit? and get back down to that particular place. How, how many days was that? Uh, well, I, we'll, we'll define climbing as not skiing in this particular okay. case. Uh, okay. It's about a week. Okay. So from the time we ditched our skis, it took us about a week to go from that point to the summit and back, but that included two other camps. So we moved all our gear up to 14, and then we camped at 14, and then we moved all our gear up to 17, and then we camped at 17, and then we summited and came back, and we actually spent the next night at 17, and then came back down to 14, got all our gear, and then skied all the way back to 7,000 in one day. So we went from four, it took us two weeks to go from the glacier landing strip at Takitna at 7,000 to 14,000 feet. It yeah. took us one day to ski all the way back. <laughs> I bet you all slept good that night. Uh, we did. <laughs> what's the ele- what's the elevation of Denali? Uh, twenty thousand three hundred and twenty. Did you all have to take oxygen with you? No. No. Um, even though uh, twenty thousand, if you're acclimated, you you would not need oxygen for that. Okay. Um, but the air is actually thinner on the poles because of the way the mass works on the planet. So twenty thousand feet on Denali is more like twenty three or twenty four thousand. Uh, like if you're on Everest, for example, because the the atmosphere bulges at the equator where Everest is at so um, it's the pressure is a little lower because you know altitude is really pressure um, and you have some pretty big swings when uh, good and bad weather come in and out so if you move up too quickly and you're in a storm and you get altitude sickness you could really be in more trouble as opposed to if the weather was getting better when you had altitude sickness because then the pressure would be going up did, any, did anyone in your party have altitude sickness? No, we, we didn't have any problem with that. We had all done Rainier multiple, multiple times. I'd probably oh, okay. done Rainier 10 or 12 times by the time I did Denali. So. 
Okay. So you all built up to it. Yeah, we're we're all seasoned mountaineers. We we went in April. We were the first ones on the mountain for the year that we went because we wanted the weather to be generally a little better in April. It was a little colder, but um, we we wanted better weather. Colder temperatures were fine as long as I had better weather. I guess uh, Mount Everest is the Mac Daddy of summiting for mountaineer or, or climbers. Um, well, it's the tallest mountain in the world. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Personally, I. If I had the choice, I would probably go to K2 over Everest. But that's just okay. Me. So in comparison, in terms of difficulty, is Denali, how does that rank against Mount Everest? Or I honestly couldn't really say direct comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not put Denali as a technically difficult mountain. There's a couple of thousand feet that are, I'll say, steep by most people's standards that you have fixed lines like you do, like I'm sure you've seen on the Everest. Climbers, they go up the fixed lines that are already there. Um, there's a couple thousand feet of that on Denali, but um, Denali isn't a technical peak. And once you all summited, how long did y'all get to stay there? And were you all only ones there? We were, yep. We were the only oh, ones wow. there. Um, you're not there very long. <laughs> it was very windy the day that we, we topped out, and we immediately turned around and started coming back, uh, which is pretty typical of just about any mountain unless you're planning to camp on the summit like we do on Rainier. Um, you just pretty much visit, take your pictures, and take off. It was, um, like I said, very, it's obviously very cold on Denali, and uh, it was very windy the day we were, we were there on the top. I think maybe I do remember you telling me that you summited Denali, but I kind of forgot. I know you and I had talked about Mount Rainier a couple times, but mm-hmm. I think I had forgotten about Denali. Yeah, Rainier is a great um, practice mountain. Uh, it's kind of the way I looked at it. Um, we would uh, do do different routes on on Rainier. Uh, we camped on the summit a couple of times. We did it in the winter twice, just all preparing for Denali because uh, those all those skills we needed uh, in Alaska. Was it the same group? Y'all? Uh, no, not not always the same group, okay. but um, definitely the, uh, maybe the same group, but not all at the same time. So all uh, the two guys I went to Denali with. I'd been mountaineering with for years, but not necessarily at the same time. So did y'all have any um, tight situation on the Denali trip? Did y'all get any, into any potential trouble um, that you got out of, obviously? I, usually there's one one part of every trip that's kind of like the fall and you die section. But it would seem to me as I look back and not any particular incident, um, there was probably one of those almost every day on Denali, it seemed like. I mean, any day that you moved, because there's hazards everywhere. But I, again, I wouldn't put it from my personal experience as hazardous, so to speak, at least for the West Buttress route that we talked about. Certainly on Mount Rainier, there was a lot more hazardous routes that I did there as opposed to Denali. We, we did the, the tourist route on Denali, what people would call the guide route, but before everybody was there. So. What's the elevation of Mount Rainier? 14,410 or 11 feet. 14,400. Think back, if you can, your first trip up mm-hmm. Mount Rainier. Mm-hmm. What was your thoughts then? Was that your most technical climb um, that you've done or mountaineer? Well, again, as far as technical, no. Um, Mount Rainier, at least the, the guide route that you kind of stick to when you're first learning or first summiting a uh, mountain like Rainier, you stick pretty much to the guide route. Um, which is not super technical. Uh, again, I would define it as steep by most people's standards. Uh, I guess steep would my definition of 
steep would be if you dropped a water bottle, it would keep, keep falling. There's certainly plenty of terrain there that would fit that bill, but mm -hmm. it's not a technical, a guide route, at least anyway, isn't a technical um, feat. It's pretty okay. much but the, what we refer to in the mountaineering world as a walk-up. I would probably refer to it as a climb. <laughs> yeah, you, you might refer to it as yeah. climbing. Um, you know, generally, if you can reach out and touch the, the ground in front of you, yeah. uh, that's, that's my definition of steep, right? So I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And, uh, you know, if you can spit on your partner who's at the end of a 150-foot rope, that's steep. That would be steep. So you all use Mount Rainier as a training mm -hmm. grounds for the Denali trip, right? Yes, sir. What things did you all focus on on the Mount Rainier to get you prepared for the Denali? Um, we did several different routes just to get away from the standard guide route on Rainier. And then we focused on camping on the summit because we knew we'd have to camp at altitude on Denali. So we wanted plenty of experience staying at altitude. And we concentrated on uh, doing Rainier in the winter because uh, we knew it would be cold on Denali. So, and all those things turned out to be true. The weather on Denali is uh, fairly consistently poor, and it is certainly cold. How quickly can the weather change in places like that? Minutes, really. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, you could be looking at um, uh, blue sky and then, you, you know, not pay attention for just a few minutes, and the next thing you know, there's a storm rolling in. And that generally happens when you're facing the wrong direction. So, you know, if your weather normally moves in from the south or southwest, and you are not look in that direction, it's easy for it to sneak up on you. Much, you know, remember mountains tend to create their own weather. Moisture moving up over the top of mountains condenses. Unlike down here where a cloud has to move in, that's, that's not the way weather is generally created on a mountain. It, it, when mountaineers run into weather, we run into weather because moisture is moved in that you can't see because the warm air is hiding it down low. And when it moves up over 10 or 12,000 feet, um, it cools off and condenses. Air generally, the rule of thumb is it's three and a half degrees for every thousand feet. So every thousand feet higher you go, you're going to cool off by three and a half degrees. How did you all go about monitoring your weather? Did you all have um, any devices to um, to monitor? Well, it's funny because um, in Rainier, I lived in Seattle, so I got pretty good at the weather patterns. Uh, you can see the mountain every day from just about everywhere in Seattle. So you can associate that weather pattern really well. And I've been down to Rainier, Rainier you know, a hundred times or more. Mm -hmm. So the pattern I was pretty used to, but when we went to Denali, I wanted to know what the, what the locals did. So um, the guy that was going to fly us to the mountain, you know, you contract with a, uh, a flight service, uh, which is basically like a Cessna 182 with skis. And um, they put all your gear in it and fly you out to, to, you know, the, the glacier and drop you off. So I asked the pilot, because who better to ask than a pilot about how to judge the weather? And um, he, because he'd come over the night before, because like I said, we were the first ones there for the year. And he came over just to chat with us to let us know, you know, just introduce himself that we we're going to be taking off early the next morning. And I said, hey, well, you know, while you're here, let me know, well, what's the, what's the scoop on the weather? How do, how do you tell what the weather's like? on Denali, if it's good enough to, to fly there. And I expected them to tell me that he has some secret, you know, radio broadcast or some kind of forest service weather, you know, that, that he gets, that he looks at every day. And he, he turned around and he 
he said, do you see that pickup truck in the parking lot? And I was like, yep, because I drive that truck about a mile out of town and I pull around and if I can see the mountain, I come back to the airport and we fly to it. So that's when I learned there was no secret to these other. If it's good, it's good. If it's, it's not, bad, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Did y'all have radios with you? We we had one radio back in the day. Um, this was in the 90s. You you did get a CB radio if you were one of the first folks like we were. And that was in case something did go wrong and we were on the move because, again, we were no, no one was there but us. Um, we could CB radio uh, an aircraft that was overhead if if that was the case, if we got in trouble. But honestly, uh, I do remember taking the radio, but I can't even, I can't ever remember pulling it out. So um, mm. the answer would be no, but I, but we did take one. I remember was, that was because no one wanted to carry it. So. Was that supplied by the forestry service or the park area? No, you had, you had to bring your own. You had to bring your own, okay. Just a little handheld. A CB. Yeah, well, there was no... You know, there's no GPS back in those days. There wasn't electronics like there is now. Right. So this is like in the nineties. So. I don't know how I don't know how I could operate without carrying a radio. That's kind of my uh, <laughs> well, I mean blanket. we had I did have a radio <laughs> that I got um like a like an FM radio that I got music out of Anchorage. So oh, you wow. could hear what the big picture weather was, but on the mountain, um, you know, the mountain creates its own weather. So yeah. you, you can't really use that. It's not a one to one relationship. So whenever you all checked in, did y'all have a designated date that you had to be back by? No. If something went wrong and you all were lost forever, who would know? Well, I guess eventually the Park Service would figure it out because you're, uh, when you come back, you have to check in to tell them that you're back. So they take your card out of the active slot and put it into the completed pile. Um, so eventually they would figure that out, I suppose. I mean, if we all fell into a crevasse. Right. Yeah, and you could easily all do that. But, um, yeah, if that was the case, they would eventually figure out you were missing. Eventually. Yeah. Speaking of the um, crevasse, what's the deepest y'all ever that y'all had to cross? I have no idea. You just Forever? Go down and down. Yeah, I don't know. Hundreds of feet, I'm sure. But I don't. you don't really judge them by that. I judge them by, like, for me, I don't care how deep it is. I care how stable it is. So. You know, especially for us, for like Denali or really even on Rainier for any non-guide route, you're always assessing what the lip of the crevasse is and how thick it is, the bridge that you're crossing. So you might go up to it and look not only really down, but look across. I'm, I want to see when I'm crossing it, what the, what the bridge is like. Um, and that goes for up and down. So, um, you know, when, you, when you're mountaineering, like Denali, we operated during the day, but normally on Rainier, we would operate at night. So your, your operational period would generally be from 10 o'clock at night until ideally nine o'clock the next morning. So you, you don't want to be up there when it's, everything's melting and getting warmer because the snow oh, okay. bridges change. So okay. you, you would go up and I've had, I've crossed bridges in the morning and come back in the afternoon and haven't gone. So you're so, always you know, on the lookout for stuff that's falling in. So you ought to operate at night on Mount Rainier because the weather was colder and the ice was more secure. Absolutely. So whenever you all set up this bridge, what what's the bridge entail? Uh, well, you you don't set the bridge up. When, I, when I'm saying bridge, um, it's a snow bridge in between the crevasses. So as the ice flows down the mountain, the uh, the if you kind of think of it like water on a river that has rapids, the ice tumbles over uh, objects that are below it, but, okay. you know, a really, really big scale. Um, so you might have, like, for example, Mount Rainier, you might have crevasses that are 
couple hundred feet deep as it tumbles over the rocks that are below it. So that changes constantly where those crevasses are, how deep they are, and how the snow bridges uh, span them is kind of what you're worried about. That's your primary. And that's always changing. Always changing every day, like even from when you go up to when you come down. Did you all flip a coin on who goes first? <laughs> um, no, not not really. Usually, it might sound kind of weird, but the most experienced person you probably want in the back because that's the person that's going to get you out of the crevasse. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as that goes, I don't know what the statistics are, but there's probably just as great a chance, as far as I'm concerned, you falling in as the last person, as the first person. Probably not technically so, but I never looked at it as any safer being last than going first. Uh, can the average person go? Oh, they, sure. They, they yeah. have guides that will take just the average person. I'm sure there's guidelines that you have to meet. Yeah. The, if you were going to go with a guide service like Rainier Mountain Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated, who's operated on the mountain for decades, mm-hmm. um, they would give you a physical fitness test guidelines. Uh, I don't know if they actually test you, but they do tell you what kind of shape you need to be in. There's certain aerobic benchmarks that I think they would like to see you meet. And then you um, go out for a day and they kind of evaluate you down low. And then they hike you all up to Camp Muir, which is the 10,000 foot camp. There's a hut there that they use. So their clients get to stay in the hut and they make food and water for you and stuff. And then uh, if you're all good to go there, they rope you up, uh, you know, the next day or two, depending on the weather, and then start you up the mountain. Uh, And if you have problems, they have enough guides that they can turn people around at certain points if they don't feel that that they're going to make it to the top. How many people's in a group that they take up? I'd have to guess, but maybe six to eight. They, They pack them a little closer than we do as a private party. So if one individual falters, then they just assign him to a guide, bring the him, bring that person back down. Everybody else still gets to. Yeah. So you, but remember you might have, when I say say 60, I mean, that's on one rope, like a rope team, but you might have four rope teams go up, you know, so there's several guides generally and one client has a problem. They have enough capacity to absorb that. I did a little research on Mount Rainier uh, last night and one of the, the one of the statistics that popped out at me was that they only have like a fifty percent success rate for people going out and climbing. Yeah. So it's okay. not, it's not that's a walking fine. park. Uh, well, I would say that's probably my success rate, fifty percent. But uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's all because it's difficult, but there's a lot of weather considerations that you probably don't take into consideration. So down low, like anything below ten thousand. Uh, the weather is pretty stable here, and we don't really much worry about it, like the River Gorge, for example. But all moves up high are dependent on weather. I mean, yeah, it, you're always looking at the weather. Everyone's always asking about the weather. and We talk about the weather. So it's important to know what the weather is doing, and you can really only know what it's doing if you know what it's been doing. So we often specifically chat about the weather so we remember where the clouds were or how the weather was maybe two or three hours ago, what it was like in the morning. And then that way it helps you remember where the weather is now. So just, just looking at the weather doesn't tell me what direction it's going. I want to know 
is moisture moving in and I'm starting to see a cloud cap up high? Because if that's the case, that means it's going to be windy because a cloud cap generally means it's, it's a lot windier. Weather is a lot more of a consideration than it is down low, like yeah. if you're going hiking, for example. Yeah. And, and what's the max wind that y'all sustained up on Mount Rainier? Um, you know, again, I, I don't really bring any uh, I, devices or whatever, yeah. but I can tell you um, there's been several times where I've crawled. Like, ri- ridiculous, but yeah. <laughs> I have crawled. Oh, my gosh. Just, just because, um, I mean, someone asked me that actually when I came back from Denali, what the weather was like, I mean, what the wind was like, and I tried to explain it that if I walked up to you and grabbed you and just threw you to the ground, that's what the wind was like. Yeah, you, you, I, it would be an assault if I, if I <laughs> get battered assault, you. Get assaulted by the wind. Yeah, so, so yeah, um, uh, several, several times I can remember being on the ground crawling. Yeah, for sure. And wow. obviously, we're, we're not going up at that point. We're going down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to get out. Right, yeah. Have you ever been um, caught in bad weather where you, you have to – makeshift camp and ride it out yes that's that's probably not as big of a deal as you might be thinking so that that happens i don't want to say frequently but that's certainly not a big deal so let's say um that the weather would would get bad for just a few hours you might hide out in a crevasse or you might dig a little snow cave for some temporary shelter while some weather moved in generally i like to think of the operational period that we we operate in it on mountaineering is a day, a night, and a day. So if you get up, you know, at 10 o'clock, you could very possibly be 10 o'clock at night. You could be going all night, be up that whole next day, and not go to bed until the following night. Uh, when things have not gone as planned, that is not, that's not unusual. So a 24-hour day summit day is certainly under the realm of possibility for Rainier or Denali. Denali's a lot easier because it stays light for a long time. Yeah. But um, Rainier, you have to be prepared for two periods of darkness, for sure. You know, I've watched videos on, you know, Mount Everest. I think they had a little program there on maybe the History Channel or something, and you get to see that. But knowing someone who's went through it is is a little different take to it. And I didn't realize that Denali was that close to Mount Everest in terms of cold and height and mm. uh, equi- not, equivalent, equivalent elevation and not, not, not really, I wouldn't say in height, Everest is definitely higher and, and really the next level into the death zone, if you will, above 26,000, you don't run into any of those issues, or at least we didn't run into any of those issues on Denali because we were pretty prepared for how to acclimate and to do all that correctly. So we didn't have any, any altitude issues. Yeah. Um, but certainly cold and weather, and I've never been to Everest, so I can't speak intelligently to what their weather is like. But I do see them on TV like you do at 17,000 feet uh, wearing T-shirts and shorts and, you know, little yeah. booties. And you can't do that at 17,000 feet on the valley. You would freeze to death. What other mountains have you climbed? I've done a lot of uh, mountaineering in the Cascades. So uh, all the Cascade volcanoes, but a lot of the... Um, I'll call them the lesser known, smaller peaks between seven and eight, nine, 10,000 feet in the Cascades that are snow or ice and rock that let you use rock climbing skills and some ice climbing skills at the same time. Those are generally really the most fun type of climbing, I think. Mountaineering is fun, 
and doing different routes mountaineering is fun but i like doing uh rock climbing as well so i like mixing the two together how many years has it been since you last summit a significant uh, climb oh it's been a while now because i live in cincinnati but maybe i don't know five years or so five or six years something you're going to go back and do oh yeah again? We, yeah uh, it's it's generally it's on the vacation plan every year if not every other year now when i say i haven't summited that means just i haven't summited but i have been to rainier every other year for the last five years so i go i just haven't made it oh okay yeah, yeah. Every I've been to Rainier three times in the last six years. What about? Um, um, I always find this interesting, uh, kind of from a philosophical standpoint. But being in those type of situations, have you ever experienced anything that you can take away from, like mountaineering, that would be a life lesson that you applied to your life going forward? Uh, yeah, um, just about everything I learned from mountaineering, I applied to my life. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. You're responsible for your own safety. Yeah. Uh, be prepared to spend the night. I mean, I guess I can't, you know, I, I once heard that the Eskimos have a rule, and that is you should be able to lay down wherever you're at and spend the night and go to sleep. And although that's not really super practical in most of the world, including Rainier, you couldn't really bring that much gear, but um, everywhere you go, I'm talking some of days specifically, but I can tell you, I always bring the minimum amount of stuff that I want if I were to spend the night out. So for example, for me, that on, on Rainier would be a shovel, a stove, some ramen, fuel, obviously, to go with the stove, and um, an insulate pad. Those are generally my minimum, my minimum items that I would need. So if I was going to the River Gorge, it would be something similar to that. It would be the ability to make a fire nowadays, something to filter water because mm-hmm. um, that's kind of necessary there now. And a shelter, just to make a shelter, to stay, get get out of the rain for a few hours because you're going to probably, especially in the gorge area, you know, as a search and rescue guy, I'm going to tell you not to walk around at night because people fall off the cliffs just to stay put for a few hours, you know, so the sun can come up. Yeah. Um, one other thing I'd like to mention before we close out, Mark, and I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. You are our training officer in mm-hmm. charge of our training with the search and rescue uh, group here team. And you have a rescue three international status instructor. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a rescue three international technical rope rescue instructor and a Kentucky emergency management rope rescue instructor. In previous lives, I've been um, an AMGA single pitch guide instructor as well. So a little, I did a little rock rock climb guiding in the early 2000s for a few years in the gorge so the climbing and the search and rescue and uh, giving of your time to others has has uh, been in your blood for quite some time now uh i guess when you put it like that (laughs) yeah yeah. well i I think of uh, and the reason that came to my mind is we just finished up with uh, veterans day and we have um you know i think of all the people that has sacrificed and given the United States and the world really the ability to do what we're doing. And, mm-hmm. and uh, oftentimes search and rescue and EMS and firefighters and sheriff's office and all those first responders, uh, they're right in the mix of a lot of things on a day-to-day basis that people don't even know that's going on. So um, I thank you for a lifetime of volunteering and helping others in tight situations. We appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, anything else, Mark, you want to throw out to us on uh, 
topic of mountaineering? Um, no. I mean, get out there and give it a shot. Is there an organization that you would recommend if someone is listening to us that might want to look into mountaineering? Well, my only real experience with organizations is in Seattle, and the Seattle Mountaineers would be an excellent, be an uh, excellent. resource. If you didn't want to move to Seattle to learn mountaineering, you could always uh, look up a company like Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated uh, and go guided. Um, there's a lot of clients that fly out from the Midwest to to do a, a trip like uh, Rainier. Yeah. Okay. Mark, I appreciate it. We'll go ahead and close out. And uh, I have a feeling that we're going to get um, several comments on this. I may invite you back and dig in more detail on some of your trips. Uh, sounds like you may have some stories for us. If you have some pictures, some cool pictures, send them my way and we'll put together a little blog and our listeners can go to Nature Alliance School website, which is naturealliance.org, be able to look at your pictures and, and uh, live vicariously through you. Okay. Good. Great. Okay. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tracy. Listen up. The Ultimate Knot Course is live. I say again, the Ultimate Knot Course is live. Look in the description below for a link to the Ultimate Knot Course, which Tracy Trimble and myself put together. It has two very important parts. Obviously, how to tie knots. But secondly, and what most people seem to be missing these days, is how to put those knots to use. If you get in now, you can use the following code, UKC10. That's UKC10 for 25% off. Get in there now. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blinds School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.